you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're moving on to chapter 3 in our study through the book of Revelation. And we're going to look this morning at the first two points before we go to the Lord's table. As we read this, um, I don't know if you picked up on the differences that we see in this particular letter to Sardis, and I would call this message Sleepy Sardis. So if you feel the, the slight urge to fall asleep this morning, this message is for you. <clears throat> no pressure, though. Um, we're only going to look at the first two points of four this morning, though. And this is a letter to a church that is operating on past greatness, past <coughs> achievement, past notoriety past prosperity. This is a church that is on the other side of what some might call its heyday. And it's, I think, pretty important to understand that there is, as Jesus is addressing the angel or the elder of the church in Sardis, there's some noticeable absences here. There's no mention of external pressures like we've seen in the other four letters to the other churches. There is no synagogue of Satan mentioned. There is no mention of the Nicolaitans. There's no mention of the false prophets like Balaam. And as we looked last week at Jezebel, there are none of these external factors to draw them away. We have an absence here of external pressures from the world and noticeable pressure from Satan. So all should be well, right? Well, if we don't have a frontal attack from the world or the devil, where else should we be looking? And this church is exempt from those outward urgent pressures upon them, but this this church is in danger of falling to sleep to death. That's the warning here. And this church has been lulled into a sense of security, and they are here identified as being asleep at the wheel. There is an important help when we sense danger, right? Mark talked about his... uh, his time in the Wichita airport this morning and that immediate sense of danger, alert, alert, that shot of adrenaline. If I were to ask any of you this morning, if if you were to recall one event in your life, you can all do it. Probably there is a moment that is emblazoned in your minds. For me, it is 2 a.m. running through a graveyard. <laughs> There's a, a long story behind that. But whenever I think of urgent moments where the adrenaline is pumping and I am awake and I am alert and I am alive. It's 2 a.m. You want the whole story? (laughs) I was hiding from what I thought was a drug dealer, dodging tombstones on my way to get home after my tire broke down on a late night coming home from work. And it turned out to be just a jealous boyfriend who had no basis for that. But I didn't know who was in those headlights 
looking for me and I was dodging tombstone to tombstone. Yes, it's quite the adventure. And then someone asked me a week later, what, what's on the back of your jacket? And I took my jacket off and looked at it. It's limestone where I was leaning against that tall tombstone. But you all have that picture in your mind of that moment, that event that that scared you. When there is a full-on frontal attack from the enemy, we're there. We're, we're, we're keyed in. Our senses are high. Our alert is up. But this church had a different challenge, and it's important for us to see that this morning. This church was taken off of high alert. That heightened sense of danger was not there, and they were sleepy. They were going into a coma, spiritually speaking. I was thinking about it this morning, and I mentioned the mark. We have been at Word of Grace Baptist Church at this for almost nine years now. And I was thinking about how difficult it has been. We've had challenge after challenge after challenge. And even the easy things like getting a constitution done was hard. It was difficult. And sometimes you think, why are, why are these things so difficult? And man, I wish things would just flow easily. And I, it just slapped me in the face. God is so good. And it is such a blessing that things are hard. This church, think about this for a second. This church in Sardis is a church that had it too easy. They didn't have an elder that had just been burnt at the stake. They didn't have that. They didn't have the synagogue of Satan just outside their door where his full on frontal attack was evident. This is a church that had things relatively easy. And because of that, they had an incredible spiritual challenge in front of them. Um, and I want to look at that this morning. That'll be the focus of our, our attention. But just a reminder, Acts 14, 21 through 23, when they had preached the gospel to that city and they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, listen to this, and saying that through many or much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. The norm for the Christian life and Christian discipleship is hardship, is affliction, is challenge. This is what God has made us for. And he uses these things in our lives to strengthen us, to sanctify us and to grow us so by way of context we're only going to look at one and two by way of context um this church is church number five on our circular mail route if you can go to the next slide we have covered ephesus smyrna pergamum thyatira and here we are in sardis so we're heading south and back in inland a bit and we've got philadelphia and laodicea and this all makes a circular mail route <clears throat> this is a city by the way, that still face the common dangers of idolatry that these other cities faced. There is um, an archaeological record of a temple to Diana. So where was Diana worshipped? Does anybody remember? Ephesus. So we're only a short distance from Ephesus, Sardis. Um, it's not as if they didn't have outward challenges. They're just oblivious to it. Life is good in Sardis. 
come to our church. No problems here. This was historically, historically, by the way, a city of relative wealth and prosperity. And there was also a strong presence of unbelieving Jews in that city as well. So this served as a potential backdrop of competition to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that was uh, located in this city. So point number one, we have an introduction from the seven spirits. First one, into the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This letter is from the Lord Jesus. And I want you to remember every opening introduction to every one of these churches takes us back to chapter one. In chapter one, we're given a very vivid image of who Christ is in his person and his characteristics. Every one of them carries into chapters two and three as we see them restated in the introduction to each of these churches. And what's interesting is every aspect of Christ and his person is directly applicable to the seven churches and their need. So here we have um, this repeated pattern. And, And the picture that we see is the one who has the seven spirits of God. And we talked about this when we went through chapter one. The seven spirits of God are a picture of who? Anybody? The Holy Spirit in his perfection. We talk about the, the, the picture of seven in its completeness. What does God say about this church? I know your works, and guess what? They're incomplete. We have the complete spirit of God who holds us church in his hands and we have the incomplete works of this church and this imagery is taken uh, by the way from Zechariah chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter (laughs) 4 but just by way of refresher Revelation 1 4 John says to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne In Revelation 4, verse 5, as we go into the throne room, we see verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, symbolism to illustrate truth for us. This is a spirit of God who lacks nothing. There's no fault in the Holy Spirit. Revelation 5, 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The overwhelming message that I want you to see from this, and we looked back in Zechariah chapter four that explains this in detail. The overwhelming message that Jesus is communicating to the church is that you desperately need me. That's what Jesus is telling the church. We sang it just a minute ago. It's incredibly true, but this is what Jesus is communicating to them. They have incomplete works. What is the remedy for that? You need the spirit of God. You need Christ to do 
everything that I have commanded you to do. That is the message. Remember the picture of the seven golden lampstands. Zechariah 4 talks about the pipe that goes into those lampstands. What is that? The sustaining flow of the Holy Spirit into the church. The church is what the church is supposed to be when the Spirit of God is empowering it. And here's a church that's asleep at the wheel. Why? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, but I want to highlight some things this morning. Point number two, and this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, which will not be too long. Surprise, surprise. Um, I gave you, for, for those of you that are taking notes, and I strongly encourage you to, because I don't retain information as well as when I write it down. So I put these in here so that you could see them while I'm talking through those and and see what what we're what we're looking at. Verse or point number two, we find the admonishment, and here Christ um, rebukes them. He says, "I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive." but you're dead. I want to give you, and by the way, this is a statement of hyperbole. And this is given to this church to jar them. If the Lord Jesus Christ says to you, you're, you are spiritually dead. What was that do? There was a morning when the elder in the church of Sardis read this to his church family. Can you imagine sitting there, wherever they met, maybe it was a home, maybe it was a synagogue of some sort. Can you imagine hearing those words read to you if you're a believer sitting in that church? You're dead. You're on life support. Your former glory is gone. And the question really is, what is in this letter that may give us some sort of a clue as to what causes spiritual sleepiness, if you will? Specifically, what makes for good spiritual deadly naps? What makes for a sleepy church? I'm going to give you these observations, and then we'll look at each one of them. Observation number one is pride. Second is hypocrisy. The third is self-sufficiency. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not just throwing things out there. I'm extrapolating these from the clues that we have in the text. We have self-sufficiency, self-satisfaction, forgetfulness, and laziness. Um, where do all these things track back to? The world? The devil? Me. So here's a church that... Its primary attacker is from within. The enemy is from within. <clears throat> Jesus says, as, as we open this and we look at these clues that are buried in this text, he said, I know your works. What is implied here is that while Jesus knew their works, what did they know? They knew, and we'll get to it in a second, what their reputation was. They had a good reputation from those that were without. But, but by implication here, Jesus says, I know your works, and they're lacking. What is, what is 
evident here is that they did not know their works, which means what? They thought much higher of themselves than they should have thought. Number one is pride. God knew their works, but they didn't. By definition of pride, we we have this. It's conceit. It's vanity. Pride is an exaggerated self-esteem. It is a desire to be admired by others. A prideful person does not receive constructive criticism. The opposite of pride is humility. And humility's definition is a freedom from pride or arrogance. Seeing ourselves, and this is key, humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. Colossians 3.12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We talked in great detail last week about God-ordained systems of authority, and it is vital for us to understand those realms of authority. We talked about it again in Bible study this morning. It's it's vital for, for us to understand that, to understand who God is and what my role is. Christians are to be obedient. They're to be submitted. Well, submitted to what and why? Why, why am I to be submitted? When we understand what our role is in each of these areas of authority, then we can be obedient and submitted. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. One thing pride will do is it will cause us to wrongly assess our roles and our position before God. Pride will cause us to wrongly see our role and our position before God, and it drives us to arrogance and then to disobedience. Pride defiles us. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus talking about when, when the Pharisees brought accusations against the disciples who ate and had not washed their hands. And that's not to say, by the way, these guys had just come off the fishing boat and their hands stunk like fish. Maybe they did. But, but really, the Pharisees were after something else. They were after the ceremonial washing of the hands, right? So Jesus teaches the Pharisees a bit of a theological lesson. And he says this in Mark seven twenty: what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of the man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and what? They defile a person. Notice verse 4 that we just read a few minutes ago. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you have some who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. So pride, number one, will lead us to spiritual slumber. Excuse me. Observation number two. Um, by the way, um, good quote from Calvin here. He says, men are undoubtedly more in danger from prosperity than from adversity. For when matters go smoothly, they flatter themselves and are intoxicated by their success. Remember, hard things, hard times are blessings from the Lord. 
Why? They're going to drive us to him for our sustenance. If you're going through a difficult time this morning, thank the Lord for it. That's counterintuitive. We're looking for the exit, the exit strategy. What's my back door to get out of this? Thank the Lord for it. Pride will lead us to spiritual slumber. Observation number two is hypocrisy. He said this, you have a reputation. You have a reputation. Mark talked about dealing with slander and accusation this morning as we were studying um, 2 Samuel. And here is a church that was very much concerned with their reputation. But what is reputation? Reputation is what people think you are. Does reputation always match up with the real thing? But you know what? Sometimes we're good with letting people think of us in terms of our reputation. And what do we call that? Well, it's called play acting. It's called hypocrisy. Um, <clears throat> what is character? Character is the quality. This is my dad's definition, by the way. I, I stole it from him. I have uh, one of the gifts he left me is a long theological terms and definitions page, which is really awesome. He said, he says this, the quality of life that is manifest before God alone. This is character. It differs from reputation as reputation is what people think you are. But character is what God knows you to be. Character is what you are in the dark when nobody but God can see you. Character is what we really are. Character and and reputation can differ, can't they? Sometimes for the good and sometimes for the bad. We may have an unfairly earned bad reputation because someone has assassinated our character, thrown rocks at it, if you will. Jesus expresses this perfectly when he defines hypocrisy for the religious leaders of his day. And in Matthew chapter 23, he says this, verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Um, This was a good text, by the way, for our discussion on, on tolerance last week. This would not be politically correct when you think of this um, conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without, without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Think about that one for a minute. Choking on a gnat while you're swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He's not done. Woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you have outwardly, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
So what's going on? What makes a hypocrite a hypocrite? And, and this is, by the way, one of the charges leveled at the believing church right and left these days. This is like the ultimate crime uh, from the world's perspective. But <clears throat> what makes a hypocrite a hypocrite? It's somebody that is looking to be something on the outside. They're polished. They're clean. They're well presented on the outside. On the inside, completely different. What matters to the Lord Jesus Christ? What matters to him? He said, clean, clean the inside of the cup and the inside of the dirty bowl. That's what's important. And the outside will take care of itself. Hypocrisy is self-deception. It lies to me about me. That's what hypocrisy does. It also lies to me about God. And we're reminded in Jeremiah 17, 9, that we are quite capable of lying to ourselves, aren't we? We like to think very highly of ourselves, and we love to accentuate the perception that other people have of us. Oh, he's, he's a great guy. Yeah, that Danny, awesome. Yeah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What is the remedy for hypocrisy? Well, the psalmist says in Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In Proverbs 4, 23, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flows the springs of life. What do we do to guard ourselves against hypocrisy? See ourselves for what we truly are. Hypocrisy flows very nicely from pride. It flows very nicely. By the way, the sins that we're talking about are all fruit from the same root. They're all, they're all birds of the same feather, we could say. The answer to hypocrisy is the word God, bringing ourselves in line with the truth of God's word, that we see ourselves for what we really are. Observation number three, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Well, where do I get that from? He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Why would this church be on life support? Why? Is it that there was not enough? Did God's grace run out for this church? No. Why was this church burned out? Just not enough supplying oil from the Holy Spirit to light their lamp? No, wasn't the problem. So what happens? Complacency or... I got reliance. Yes, I've got this. I got it. The fact that they're on life support tells you that they are self-sufficient. Because if they were reliant on the sustaining grace and strength of the Holy Spirit to infuse them with oil to light their lamps, they wouldn't be on the verge of going dark. He warns them, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. The simple fact is they're on life support and they were ministering in their own strength. 
2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 10, so keep me from becoming conceited, or so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Um, and this is Paul, by the way, who, who would the life experience to brag? If anybody, it was Paul. And Paul says, the Lord, so gracious of him to keep him from, be, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. We've always asked the question, what was the thorn in the flesh? And there's been lots and lots of speculations. And guess what? I'm not here to give you that answer. That's not the point. What is the point of the thorn in the flesh? To keep me from being conceited. That's why God sent it. Whatever it was, some have speculated it was eyesight. There, there's could be a host of things that apply to this. But the main point, and this is what Paul is communicating, it's not the thorn in the flesh that's important, but why God sent it. And he sent it to keep Paul from becoming um, conceited. And Paul asked three times that it should be removed. But look at verse nine. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness. Listen to that. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness. Insults. Talked about that this morning. Hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Do you see what he's saying? For when I am weak, then am I strong. It is what Paul is saying about the thorn in the flesh that the Lord sent. See, it is a blessing. It's a blessing. He had a sanctified perspective on what God was doing to hold him back from sin. And God uses difficult times to do that. There is only one way to walk in power. And it's not when we say, I got this under control. The real secret to understanding the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit is to say, I absolutely must have you. I need you. I cannot do this. You have given, Lord, you have given me this great task to achieve. And by the way, sometimes that's a sink full of dishes. You have given me this mountain of a task to tackle. And I can't do it in my own strength. I am weak. Will you help me? And it is at that point that the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit infuses us with everything we need to be obedient to him and carry out his will. Here is a church that was languishing. It was it was in a state of lethargy because it was operating in its own strength. There's a, a, a new book that is quickly moving up my chart of favorites. It's called Piercing Heaven, the Prayer of the Puritans. Um, it's from the ministry of Alistair Begg. Highly recommend it. And all it is are prayers from the Puritans. And it's not as hard to read as you would think. For those who think, I can't read the Puritans. It makes me want to volatile. <laughs> it's fantastic. And, and the overwhelming theme from the Puritans is their, their writings and their prayer constantly points back to Christ. 
and their absolute reliance and sustenance from Christ. And here's a man by the name of Isaac Ambrose. He writes this, quote, O Lord, I have no graces by nature. I have no power to cleanse my own heart. I have defaced your image, but I cannot repair it. I can say with the apostle that when I want to do well, evil is present with me, but I find no means to do what I desire. Oh, when will I be set free to do the work of God and run the race of his commands? If only I had hope, joy, and love. Lord, I have heard of your power. You call things that are not as if they are. If you desire it, you can work in me these graces. Just as you gloriously created them in Adam. Lord, I have heard of your grace and truth. You are as faithful to keep as you are generous to make these precious promises. Your grace is unsearchable. Your word is purer than silver, seven times refined. Oh, make good your promises. Replenish me with your grace. Amen. A constant reliance on him for strength and power. Observation number four after we see this self-sufficiency, we see a certain sense of self-satisfaction. How do we know that? Well, Jesus says to this church, I have not found your works to, to be complete. They were not perfect. But there was a certain sense of self-satisfaction as if we've arrived. Ever been there? But again, they didn't see themselves for who they were, really were. They didn't see their own lacking. And there are points and times when this is a danger for us, church. It is. I've learned this. Here's something I never saw before. And it dawns on us like morning. And all of a sudden, the clouds part. And I've got a deeper understanding of God's word than I've ever had. Oh, I'm good. I've arrived. It's daylight. No, Philippians 3, verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am I, I am already perfect, that is complete or finished, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. Real spiritual maturity realizes my immaturity. Does that make sense? If anybody could have bragged and said, you know, I have, I have attained to some pretty high lofty spiritual heights, it was Paul. And Paul realized he had not attained yet. He had not yet seen the full fruition of God's glorification of his life. And he says down in verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You have not arrived until you've stopped sinning. When will you stop sinning? In glory. Amen. We will stop sinning when he completely changes us. 
We were talking about that the other night in Bible study. What will that be like when there is no longer a temptation or the possibility of sin? Our natures, our beings will be so radically changed and different that sin will not be a thought. That that blows my mind. What is that like? Because I'm thinking, man, if anybody can mess up heaven, it'll be me. But we don't understand the full change of what is going to happen in our nature and what God is going to do when he glorifies us and makes us to be fully like himself. Until we get there, we must keep pressing on because we have not arrived. If anybody had the opportunity to throw the lazy boy back and rest, it was Paul. If anybody had earned a nice, cushy retirement, it was Paul. But he's the one that reminds us that he had not yet obtained the goal, the prize. He hadn't finished the race. Mature thinking reminds us that we have much work left to do. We waste time when we think we have achieved some great spiritual stature. Let's not lie to ourselves. There is more work to be done. Second Peter 1, 5 through 10 For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What is Paul saying here? You have more growing to do. There's more to do. There is more of your life to be sanctified. He says, for if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And that is a perfect segue into number five, which is forgetfulness. Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. So they're sleeping. Jesus says, remember. Well, if he's telling them to remember what had taken place, well, what? They forgot. You guys never forget anything, do you? Like where you put your keys or, you know, where you left your wallet that you were supposed to do something and you forgot to do it. Forgot your power cord. Forgot my power cord. Forgot your keys. Forgot, um, Mark, I'm sure you forgot something this morning. (laughs) Definitely don't know what it was, but uh, I'll I'll remember it later. Forgot my family. (laughs) Forgot your family. That's a really bad one. We are forgetful by nature, aren't we? The Lord Jesus reminds the church in Sardis, Remember then what you have received and heard. Deuteronomy, we, we spent a lot of time going through the Old Testament in our Bible study. Duke, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Did Israel ever forget God? And how many times do we think, man... Those Israelites, God took them right through the middle of the sea, parted the waters on both sides, then then drowned Pharaoh. There's no way if I saw that I would have forgotten God. No way. (laughs) Yeah. 
it comes naturally to us. They had forgotten the scripture says what or Jesus says what they had received and heard, which was what? Well, Acts 19 reminds us of what they had heard. In, in Acts 19, 8 through 10, this is what was going on around them. It says, and he, meaning Paul, entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before uh, the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Did you catch that? All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's Asia, by the way, Asia Minor, where these letters are going. This this place has been saturated by the ministry of the apostles. What Jesus is referring to, what they had heard and received is what? Anybody? Old Testament. What, what, have, they, what have they received from Paul specifically, summed up, starts with a big G? gospel yes <laughs> they had received and heard the gospel jesus is telling them to remember what they had received and heard so why is jesus telling a church of christians to remember the gospel why because we forget i want to share just a an excerpt from an article from pastor joe thorne who writes for ligonier he says this, fundamentally, the gospel is forgotten when it no longer functions as our ongoing hope and confidence before God, or when it becomes unessential for the practical daily living of the Christian life. Think about that. When is the gospel unessential for us? The gospel we often forget must be reclaimed and retained for the safety of our souls, and this is done through the preaching of the gospel to ourselves Preaching the gospel to ourselves is calling ourselves to return to Jesus for forgiveness, for cleansing, for empowerment, and for purpose. It is answering the doubts and fears with the promises of God. Do my sins condemn me? Jesus has covered them all in his blood. Do my works fall short? Jesus' righteousness is counted as mine. Are the world, the devil, and my own flesh conspiring, conspiring against me? Not even a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven, and he has promised to care for me and keep me forever. Can I really deny myself, carry my cross, and follow Jesus? Yes, for God is at work in me, willing and working in me for his own pleasure. This is what it looks like to preach to ourselves. This private and personal preaching can only happen when the word of God is known and believed. When God's law reveals our sin and helplessness and his grace covers that sin and becomes our weakness and overcomes our weaknesses, preaching the gospel to ourselves is not simply the act of studying the Bible, though we can preach to ourselves in that act, but it is actively calling ourselves to believe the promises of God in Jesus, his son. We preach to ourselves through the dis disciplines of prayer and meditation on scripture in praying, we look to God to graciously meet our needs, and in the act itself, we exercise faith. In his exposition on the Lord's Prayer, Thomas Manton said, quote, prayer is a preaching to ourselves in God's hearing. Think about that. Prayer is a preaching to ourselves in God's hearing. We speak to God to warn ourselves. 
not for his information, but for our edification, unquote. The gospel promises in God's word guide us in prayer, leading us to the safety of Jesus' service and sacrifice. By meditation, we call to mind the gospel. By prayer, we claim the gospel as our great hope. Most of us need to rediscover the gospel. And such a recovery is needed daily because our need is ever present and our hearts are prone to wander. But gospel recovery only happens when we feel the weight of our sins, the weakness of our flesh, and the frailty of our faith. This means that only those who know themselves to be unworthy sinners and God's word to be true will find the gospel to be not only good news, but good news for their own souls. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, lest we forget. And, and you know, there's an amazing blessing that God gives in means. Scripture says, forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because there is a holding accountable that we have as we love each other and um, we remind each other of the gospel. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a couple of minutes. Why do we do that? Jesus said, do this in what? Why? Because we forget. The old debate is, well, how often should we have the Lord's Supper? Well, how often do you forget? So we do it bi-weekly. We don't forget in between. (laughs) Observation number six, lastly, laziness. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Does that sound familiar? That warning? The thief in the night? Laziness lies to us and tells us we have plenty of time to do what we need to do. Did anybody ever struggle with procrastination? Exactly. <laughs> I'm too tired to struggle with that now. I will wrestle with procrastination later on. Well, scripture reminds us that time is fleeting, and it uses the analogy in Proverbs 6 of the ant when it says, Consider the ant, thou sluggard. Um, Consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, just like a thief, and want like an armed man. What is the point? The point is, is when God gives us a calling and he tells us that we have something to do, when do we do it? Get after it. Don't put it off. Life is short. We see the parable of the 10 virgins in Matthew chapter 25, and you know the story. They all take their lamps and they're ready for, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, but half of the virgins only had oil, the other half didn't. And when the night came, they all fell asleep, they were tired. And then the pronouncement, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here. And then five of them said to the, the ones that had the oil, what is the oil, by the way? Holy Spirit. The five without the Holy Spirit said, give us what you got. We need some of it. And they said, go down to the market and get some. They knew they couldn't get that at the market. 
They're like, get away from me. No, it's just an analogy. But the point is, is while they went to the market to get the oil to trim their lamps, Son of God returns and they're caught unawares. They're not ready. And the scripture says the door is shut. The door is slammed shut. We don't have much time. We don't think I've got my whole life in front of me. My brother was in his early 20s when the Lord took him. He thought he had had three weeks to go until he was going to get married. He thought he had his whole life in front of him. We don't know what that life looks like. We do not know how long the Lord has us on this earth. If he has given us something to do, and brothers and sisters, he has. If he's given us something to do, get to it. Don't waste time. Don't be idle. We must keep a watch on ourselves. Paul Washer says this, he says, your laziness with regard to scripture is a direct affront to the majesty of God. It demonstrates your unbelief. You're like a child who gets the most exquisite gift. And after opening the box, you look at it. That is the gift and you throw it away and you play with the box. We've seen that, haven't we? God has given us everything we need right here. Don't play with the box. Keep a watch on ourselves by constantly bringing our lives into the light of the word of God. Galatians 6.1, and we're going to close. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, what? On yourself, lest you too be tempted. Staying awake is work, isn't it? It is. I see some of you yawning work but that's the point we may be weary in our work but let's not be weary of our work there's a difference it's okay to be tired because we're working hard we should be working hard but let's not fall asleep at the wheel spiritually speaking because we let our flesh defeat us the important question for us this morning as we come to the table is are we awake Are we awake? Are there signs of life? Sometimes I wonder with some of us. Are there signs of life? Are we alert? Are we awake? Or are we neglecting the means of God's sustaining grace? One of those means is the Lord's table. So we're going to come to the table. Jesse, will you come forward? And Stephen, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I just want to remind us this morning that The Lord's table is the Lord's table. I loved what we talked about this morning with Mephibosheth. I don't need the property. I don't need the retirement. I don't need the inheritance. Just let me sit at the table. Just let me sit at the table. I'm obligated to remind you that it's the Lord's table. Any believer is welcome to it. The scripture warns us, though. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, none of us, if we're truly honest, are worthy to sit at the Lord's table. 
if you're a believer, you have been made righteous. You have been given a white garment. You have been invited to sit at the table. That is God's amazing grace on our lives. But if we devalue, he goes on to say, for who anyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The idea there is to devalue it, to treat it lightly, to not take it seriously. So how do we take the body and the blood of Christ seriously in symbol as we come to the Lord's table? Well, the scripture says we're to examine ourselves. That's how we take it seriously. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait, or carry for one another. So it is our custom that we take a minute um, to reflect on what we're doing here. Um, Let's take a minute to do that, and then I will, I'll pray, and we'll proceed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that we could be counted worthy to be seated at your table. This is an amazing picture of fellowship that we have with you because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's also a reminder that we need to be sustained by you. Just a simple analogy of food and drink reminds us of how desperately we need you, how desperately we must remind ourselves and preach to ourselves and each other the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have made us fit because of your righteousness to sit at your table. We do this this morning in honor and remembrance of what you have done for us. And we glorify you in this today, Lord. We praise you for it in your name. Amen.